Hey, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if, if you will. We're going to be looking at two passages today from the book of Colossians and also the book of 2 Corinthians. As we begin a new year, I mentioned before, I don't make New Year's resolutions because I never keep them. But I have commitments to Christ that I fully intend to keep. And it's very important for me to finish strong, not just as a pastor at Golden Hills, but finish strong in life, in my marriage, and with my family, and then to keep going and finish strong until the day I meet Jesus face to face. You know, you can be a Christian, you can have all kinds of commitments to give, to pray, to serve, to be involved. You can even say, you know what, I want to grow closer to Jesus, but we have a tendency to drift in those commitments. But the, the fact of the matter is, when we start a new year like this, if God gives us this year, one of the main questions is, will I be closer to Christ a year from now than I am today? Will I be closer to Christ tomorrow than I am today? I've been on a quest for some time over the years to learn how people finish strong. How did Paul do it? How did Ezekiel do it? How did John and some of the others finish so strong? And today I want to share with you a couple of passages that have helped me. Uh, One in particular in Colossians that I review from time to time to help me to know whether or not I'm staying on course. That I am actually growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In this first passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Corinthian church has committed to give an offering to the hard-pressed believers back in Jerusalem. Paul is sending Titus now to collect on what they've committed. And what he encouraged them to do has been a model not just for my giving, praying, and serving, but for my life. And picking it up in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 10, here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter, he said. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to one does not have. So in matters of praying, giving, serving, the commitments we make to Christ, Paul says you need to finish that work. But it isn't just in those specific commitments. In our, it's our life and walk with Christ in general. The Colossian church was a good church. Their faith, their hope, and their love was known by lots of people. But Paul writes to them and tells them to continue in that work, continue in that faith. And when you get to Colossians chapter 3, he even outlines how that could be done. And this is the portion that I review, try to review throughout the year or at least once a year as this new year begins on faithful to the finish. And this is what he wrote in Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, thank you for this word. As we begin a new year together, we have opportunity to get closer to you than we were the year before. And I believe I can speak confidently for most all of us that we want to finish well. So God, help us today to learn with your help how that might be done. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Carla and I were first married, we moved to Oregon. I was going to go to school, and we were serving in a church. We were living upstairs over the church in a little apartment up there, which was really nice because we could hear everything going on downstairs through the air vents. We could listen to the elders at night, how they talked about us. It was really, really, really good. <laughs> but we desired to get a house. So you can imagine our interest when next door to the church, they began developing these cute little affordable houses. And we had our eye, and then we'd go out walks at night and look at their development. The walls went up, and the roof went on, and the windows went in. And then all of a sudden, the work stopped. And it stopped for a week, and then two weeks, and a month, and then it was several months. And we found out later that the developer had run off with the money, and the investors didn't have the money to finish. So here was this beautiful neighborhood falling into disrepair. Siding was peeling off, windows were broken out, weeds grew up everywhere. And what was going to be a beautiful addition to the neighborhood became a community eyesore because it was never finished. And God used that as a lesson in my life at the time, reminding me, Larry, this is what can happen to you spiritually if you're not careful. This is what can happen in your Christian life. You start out so strong and everything looks beautiful in the work I'm doing in your life. But if you don't stay strong at those things and you don't stay close to me and keep your eyes on me and keeping the commitments that you have made and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, your life that started out so well can become a spiritualized or a drain on the kingdom. And so since that time, I've always had a desire to want to learn how is it that people stay faithful to the finish, to begin well and to end well, not just in our personal commitments to give, pray, serve, and spread the gospel, but how do we finish well as believers in our testimony for Christ and our faithfulness to him? As I read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and Colossians chapter 3, we're reminded over and over again to finish the work, keep the commitment, bring it to completion. Because Paul said, you're going to be presented someday as holy in my sight. If you continue, he told the Colossians in chapter 1, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Finish the work, complete the task, continue in the faith, stay faithful to the finish, 
in your giving, your praying, your serving, and in all of your commitments to Christ and in spreading the gospel and making his glory known. Because I'm reminded again as I reviewed this from my own walk with Christ that true disciples of Christ will remain faithful to the finish. The question is, how do they do it? In Colossians 3, as I read, there are four things there that over the years I have reviewed as a reminder to me of whether or not I'm staying on course, whether or not I'm growing. Set your life in the right direction, Paul said. Guard your lives with the right deaths. Clothe your lives with the right dress and fill your lives with the right deposits. We can remain faithful to the finish when we set our lives in the right direction. Paul said this in Colossians 3 verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When I was in elementary school, we took field trips to a place called Sturbridge Village. It was a recreation of a New England community in the, at the turn of the 19th century in 1800. Wonderful place. I love going there. Well, later on, I always wanted to go back. So when I was 17 and I got my own car, I got some friends together and we drove from Hartford north over the Massachusetts border to Sturbridge. Spent the day there, had a great time. But I was new with this car and new to driving and being out of state and being in an area that had a lot more cars than I was used to, I was paying very careful attention to the traffic, unsure a little bit about where I was going. I saw the signs for the freeway and I got on the freeway and I thought, ah, I made it. And we're driving along and having a great time, laughing, talking about what we'd just been through. And I see this sign, Boston, 12 miles. Now, if you know anything about New England, if you live in Hartford in the south, you don't want to go to Boston in the north. I was driving along at 60 miles an hour, headed in the wrong direction, enjoying the whole trip, grateful I was on the freeway. God reminded me as I was thinking about that, you don't want that happening in your Christian life. You know, so many people get so distracted by so many things that happened to me. I wasn't paying attention to the sign. I got distracted by what was going on around me and I got on the wrong course and I didn't even know it. And you don't want that happening in your Christian life. It happens far too often to too many people. They get distracted by the things that are going on around them. They get their eyes off the Lord and they're headed in a wrong direction and they don't even know it. They may be even enjoying the ride. But they're not getting closer to Jesus. They're getting further away. The Christian life isn't a new lifestyle. Christian life is just that. It's a new life. Lived in a totally different way in a totally different direction. That's why Paul said, don't get distraction, distracted, look up. If I had looked up that day, I would have seen the difference between east and west or north and south. But I was so distracted down here, I didn't see it. Paul said, look up. Set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is. Because you aren't living for this world. You're living for him. That's what Paul was telling the Colossian Christians. What you set your heart and mind on affects what you believe and it affects how you live. So set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is. It's an indicative statement, meaning it indicates that your behavior is going to flow out of who you are 
and who you see yourself to be in him. So he said, set your hearts, set your minds. Phrases that mean earnestly do this, covet this, passionately desire these things, passionately desire to keep your eyes and your heart and your your mind on Christ and who he is and where he is. Don't set your desires and your hearts and your minds on earthly things because that's not you anymore. You don't live in that realm. That's not your identity. You're in it but not of it. So what is your identity that you see when you set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is? Paul said, first of all, in verse 3, you're going to see you're a person who's died. And this is where the fundamental battle begins. In verse 3, he said, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died out, he's writing. You have died and now Christ is living. Paul described that reality like this. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Which is why he told the Corinthian Christians not to live for themselves. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. If you're in Christ, you died to self. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So one of the key fundamental questions of faithfulness is simply this. Am I living Or is Jesus living in me? Not only that, but you've been raised with Christ. You not only died with him, you've been raised with him. Chapter 3, verse 1. You have been raised, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Not just that you are secure in your future, but you belong to and live in an entirely different realm. We are still in the world, but we are not of it. We are dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 6 verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. People, I used to struggle all the time before I was a Christian to be rid of some of the sins in my life. I hated them, but I couldn't. I was a slave to those things. I'm not anymore. He goes on to say in verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, Count yourselves. It's a choice we make. It's a commitment. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. The key question is this, am I offering my life to the world each day 
or am I offering it to Jesus? Not only that, he said, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died with him, you're raised with him, now you're hidden in him, covered in him, concealed in him. People, this is the most convicting part of all for me. This being hidden in Christ, people don't see us anymore. We're hidden in him. So now when they see us, it's him they are to see. Wow. This is why Jesus told the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and the crowds in Matthew 5, verse 14, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. In the same way someone lights a lamp and puts it up so it lights everything it touches. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Because when you're living that way, it's not you they're seeing, it's him they're seeing. And here's the ultimate identity statement. Not just you died with him or raised with him and you're hidden in him, but Christ is your life, he said. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The Zoe life is the word he's using. It's the very life of God. Life as God has life because God is life. And it says in verse four that when Jesus is fully revealed in glory, you will be with him and appear with him in glory. I love that word appear. It means to reveal things as they really are. Someday, Jesus is going to appear and we're all going to see him as he really is. And you, if you've been faithful with him, you know him and live for him, he's going to reveal you as you really are. And you're going to be like him. I believe that's one of the reasons Paul, in that great vision he had in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, said, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. We're going to be like him. We're going to be like him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. So a key question then is, if we're going to reflect his glory then, am I reflecting his glory now? Set your minds and hearts on things above where Christ is, not on earthly things. People, you and I live in the world, but we're not to be of it. And it isn't that all the earthly things are bad. They're not. It's just that they can be a distraction that keep us from looking up to see the right signs, Jesus, and we get on track on a road that we don't want to be on. Curtis Vaughn, a New Testament prophet, Southwestern Seminary, once wrote, earthly things are not all evil, but some of them are. Even things harmless in themselves become harmful if permitted to take the place that should be reserved for the things above. In the present passage, earthly things may be understood to include wealth, 
worldly honor, power, pleasures, and the like. To make such things the goal of life and the subject of preoccupation is unworthy of those who have been raised with Christ and look forward to sharing in his eternal glory. John Piper, in his book, A Hunger for God, put it like this. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime drivel of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Don't let the good gifts of God steal your appetite for God himself. Fix your mind and your heart on things above where Christ is. Not on earthly things. We can remain faithful to the finish also by guarding our lives with the right deaths. The right deaths. Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. It's even hard to read that. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Carla and I have lived in the same house for 35 years and uh, we're on a cul-de-sac with a pie-shaped lot and we have seven neighbors around us, which God through broken fences and storms and escaped pets and missing kids and everything else, we have gotten to know them all, I think. It's been a great evangelistic tool. Anyway, we have great neighbors. Years ago, one of our neighbors up in the back of his lot planted an ivy plant. Uh, I don't go up in the back portion of our lot up on the hill up there very much up behind our shed. I should have. That was a big mistake because his ivy grew up over the fence, under the fence, around the fence, through our trees and bushes up there. And I noticed it when I went down and saw the ivy growing across the top of my shed. And I said, that's it. So I went out and got some Agent Orange they were using in Vietnam, and I, <laughs> I sprayed it all over this stuff, and it just kind of breathed and thought, like, this is like a spa. I wasn't doing anything to this ivy. So then I got some heavier nuke stuff, and I sprayed it on. Eventually, the leaves started turning brown on the edge, and I thought, this is going to take forever. So I just went up there with a machete and a hatchet, and I started hacking that stuff and whacking it and pulling it out all the way down until I found the roots, and I hacked those off too. And I pulled all that stuff out and I killed it. And it felt so good. And then <laughs> I noticed every once in a while, now when I check up there, there's a little root or something, a little sprig pointing up here and there. And I get the stuff and I'm all over that thing. Then I'm ripping it out. I'm killing it. Because I don't ever want that thing to come back. You know, our sin nature is a lot like an ivy vine. 
You can't manage it. If you want to get rid of it, you've got to kill it. You have to destroy it. You have to cut it off at the roots. That's why Paul told the Colossian church, you've got to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The earthly nature is that sinful part of us that uh, still raises its ugly head. It's where our selfishness and pride and desires and lust and greed and all the things he mentioned here. It's where anger begins and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lying. It all born out of that thing. When it comes to living faithfully for Jesus, the flesh, that old nature, threatens to take over all the time. You can't manage the sin nature. You have to kill it. That's why Paul said you have to put it to death and get rid of it. Put it to death. Make it dead. He said kill it in verse 5. Rid yourselves. Choose to eliminate these things. When the fruit of that sinful nature starts to pop up, the rage and the malice and the other things, you've got to cut it off like a shoot. You can't let it live. And you can't put yourself in places where you're going to feed that thing. You put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So you put to death the sins that arise out of the worship of self, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. It's self-worship. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in this stuff, but you don't walk there anymore. So now you've got to rid yourself also of the sins that are toward others, the rage and the anger and the malice and the slander and the filthy language and the lying. They have no place in a Christian life. And when you see those things pop up, you've got to cut them off like a, like a threatening sprig. They're all part of the old self. We're to put on the new self, which Paul said is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You know, the more you live to know God, the more you get to know him, the less you want to live like the world. Because you're being renewed, present participle. You're ongoing, continually being renewed, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's the process God is working, and you don't want to work against that. The sin nature works against it. That's why you have to keep killing it. Because you're growing in the knowledge and image of your creator. You're not knowing, only knowing more about him. You're becoming more like him. That's what you want to see. So we have to put to death and get rid of the things that hold us back. You can't give in to the sin nature. You have to put it to death, and you have to put to death the things that feed it. So one of the questions is, what's holding you back? See, I've told guys before, uh, when we've talked about this stuff, if you've got a computer that's taking you places you don't want to go and you can't control it, get rid of your computer. I can't live without a computer. No, you can live without a computer. You, you can't live for God doing what you're doing. If your mind and your heart is captivated by television shows or your sports teams or you're enamored becoming a workaholic or whatever it is you're chasing, most likely the sin nature is using that. It's going to arise. Things are going to arise in your life out of that. They're going to draw you away from God. And those kind of things will either put to death your devotion to Jesus or you've got to put to death the things that are pulling you away. It's an everyday, moment by moment, 
surrender and putting to death the things that you see that have no business being in your life. They're not like Jesus. And people, I can tell you, every time I haven't done that, I get a mess on my head. Got to put it to death. But we can remain faithful to the finish by also clothing ourselves with the right dress. Paul went on to say in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It isn't enough just to put off the old. You have to put on the new. You know that yard I told you about that we've been in for 35 years? I once, on the back hill, pulled out 42 black trash bags full of weeds. 42 of them. And I made the mistake of not putting anything back to prevent their return. And you know what happened? In a very short time, I could have got 42 more bags up there because I didn't put anything in its place. It's not enough to put off the old, you have to put on the new. It's not enough to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You have to clothe yourselves with Jesus. You have to put them on. So Paul said, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these virtues. The word clothe is the same word as choose. So each day, apparently, we are choosing what we're putting on, like going to the closet and saying, I'm going to wear this, this, or this. Some of you today could have chosen a little better. But anyway, you, whatever you chose, you did all right. And yes, Carla does give me approval before I go out of the house. <laughs> we clothe ourselves with the attributes of Christ, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. This, this is part of the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in us. Like Jesus, we are to bear with each other and forgive as the Lord forgave us. And frankly... Uh, with what God's forgiven in my life, I have no grounds to not forgive what others have done. And then you put on love which binds them all together, binds them like a rubber band or a clamp. So you have all these wonderful virtues you put on and you don't want to lose them, so you, you're putting a band around it, a clamp that holds them all together. Love does that. All these virtues are given to us by God and he asks them to pass this on to others demonstrating this to others. Jesus is dressed in these things, and so he wants us to be dressed in them. And it causes the Christian community to be very different from the pagan world around it because the pagan world doesn't do these things. We don't have all these virtues on our own, but God will give them and he'll produce them in us. Um, the, the, the tense that this is written in means that you've got to pursue being dressed like this with a sense of urgency. You've got to really want this. It's like an exciting new garment. I can't wait to put that on. Those who finish strong in their Christian life don't focus on sinning less. It isn't just focused on the putting off. That quickly becomes legalism. It's really a focus not on sinning less, but it's focusing on being dressed more like Jesus. I want to be like him. That's the focus. And not only the right direction, the right dress, or the right deaths and the right dress, but we can remain faithful to the finish by filling our lives with the right deposits. 
individually and corporately as a church. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, I don't have a lot of time to develop this, so I'll just say it this way. Carla and I have three cars. I have a 2000, I have an 18-year-old Montero, Mitsubishi Montero. I have a 11-year-old Honda van, and I have a four-year-old Mini Cooper. Now, the Mini Cooper gets about 35, 37 miles to the gallon. The, the Mitsubishi gets 13. <laughs> but they have this in common. If I don't put gas in them, they eventually all get zero. They don't go at all. Our Christian life, the life we seek to live for God, and our commitments, and our service, and our giving, and our praying, and our faithfulness, all those things. We all have different capacities. But the fact of the matter is, if we're not filling back up with Jesus regularly, individually, and as a church, You'll eventually start running on your own strength, which eventually turns to spiritual fumes. And you'll eventually be doing all kinds of activity, but you won't be producing anything for the kingdom because it's not God doing it. You're seeing what the flesh can produce. So Paul said, make sure that you individually and you corporately are letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That rule is the same word for umpire, arbitrate. So, in other words, let the peace of Christ in your life, peace with God, peace with others, peace within, let that peace of Christ be like an umpire, that when you see things are not right with God or with others or with yourself, let that peace of Christ ruling in your heart be like the umpire standing there blowing the whistle. Something's not right right here. There's a foul. You need to stop and get it right. You need to stop and get it right. Let it rule in your heart. You're living at peace with God, with others, and within. Andy said, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom in the way you sing, in the hymns you have, in the songs you produce, in the Bible studies you teach, in all these things. You admonish and you teach and you do all of these things with letting the word, the message of Christ, the gospel, the logos be central to everything you do. That's why you don't want to be in a church that isn't teaching the word. And as a Christian, you don't want to be an individual who isn't drinking in the word every day. Not just drinking it in. It's dwelling in you richly. This is the fuel of the Spirit. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, this word. And when it dwells in you richly, you will not be running on spiritual fumes. It'll be Christ in you working. He's the hope of glory. And whatever you do, he said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1994, 
at the Winter Olympics in, Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. 26-year-old skier from Angels Camp, right up the road, was favored to win a medal for the U.S. in the combined slalom and downhill racing. His name was Kyle Rasmussen. Lasse Juice of Norway won the event. Tommy Moe of Alaska took fifth. But the guy everybody remembers is the guy who finished 31st, Kyle Rasmussen. In his attempt to have the fastest time, he missed a gate. Two other skiers, both Canadians, also missed the gate. They walked off the course in disgust and received a DNF, did not finish. But not Kyle Rasmussen. If you're old enough to have watched that, you still remember what he did. Amazing. When he, as soon as he missed the gate, he stopped. And he started going backwards up the hill and went around the gate. And he streaked down the rest of the course. An amazing time. But he finished 31st, 20 seconds behind the winner, which in an event that's won and measured in hundreds of a second, 20 seconds is an eternity. But what I'll never forget is what happened when he crossed the finish line. 31,000 people who waited stood to their feet from every nation there and wildly applauded him for what they just witnessed. And when the interviewer asked him, how do you feel about finishing 31st? <laughs> I came to ski for my country. And I came to finish. And I did. You know, anybody who watched that, almost nobody can remember the name of the guy who won it. But nobody who saw it will ever forget the guy who who finished. People, you and I are in a race. There are many obstacles. There are many distractions. And there are misgates and wrong turns all along the way. We all make them. In fact, you may be here today thinking, you know what? I've missed so many gates and made so many wrong turns. There's no point even continuing. Don't you believe it? As long as there's breath in your lungs, it's never too late to get back up. Go up the hill, go around the gate, and get back in the race. Because you see, it isn't the people who finish first who win this race. Everyone who finishes with Jesus is a winner. So, be faithful to the finish. Get your life in the right direction. Lift up and look at Jesus. Set your mind and hearts on things above where Christ is. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, those ugly things that keep trying to come up like a vine and choke us out. Dress yourself in a desire every day and every moment to be more and more like him and pursue that with all your heart. And fill your life with the peace of Christ 
and the word of Christ so that that peace will prevail in all of our lives individually and in us as a church. Paul did that. He didn't just preach it. He did it. He lived it. That's why I love to read this, the end of the story for him. 2 Timothy 4, the last letter he wrote, verse 6. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. For all those who have been faithful to the finish. Father, thank you for this reminder I needed in my life right now. Not just to finish strong as a pastor of the church, but to finish strong in life and my marriage and my family and the commitments I've made to give, to pray, to serve, to know you better, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to grow in the knowledge and image of my creator. And I'm sorry for the times when I've missed a gate. But I thank you, God, for the times you've reminded me to get back up and finish. So God, let this be an encouragement to all of us as we begin this new year. Whether in our giving, our praying, our serving, in our obedience, help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord. We don't live for us, we live for you. And with your help, our greatest joy will be knowing that no matter how many gates we've missed or times we've stumbled, you help us to be faithful to the finish. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.